As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time around we're doing Indiana Jones! Yeah, I'm a fan. Of course I'm a fan. I have a degree in archaeology. I was a kid in the 80s. I'd grown up with Indiana Jones, okay? Now, why am I doing this, unless you're living under a rock? Yes, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is out now, which you can go and see in a movie theatre of your choice, etc. I'm not sponsored by this, I just didn't even get to go to see it for free. I just, uh, of course I'm going to go and see it. So, there will be... I mean, there's basically no spoilers about Dial of Destiny here. Go and enjoy it yourself. But I will be telling you certain elements from the movie, but tying it into the overarching picture. And, of course, then talking a little bit about just Indiana Jonesy archaeological historical goodness, basically. So, let's start off with who created it. And basically, it is the brainchild between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg who, round about 1980, those two names don't get hotter than that. And a legend was born, then obviously starring Harrison Ford as well. They actually were looking for somebody to be Indiana, and the person that they really wanted was Tom Selleck. But he was busy making Magnum, and he has often said that that is the single biggest regret in his career. And I get that. And it turned out that, well, of course, they they knew Harrison Ford. It just hadn't occurred to them that Han Solo could also be Indiana Jones. So therefore, it meant that Harrison Ford, who was at the beginning of the 1970s, very much a jobbing actor, 
He was very close to giving the whole thing up. George Lucas had shown him some love already before Star Wars. The movie he made before Star Wars was a film called American Graffiti, which was basically a movie about the 1960s and sort of teenagers having fun. And a bunch of them were about to sort of go off and to, to Vietnam, but that's sort of kind of irrelevant to the, the story. It's, it's kind of a coming-of-age story. And you can see... Harrison Ford as one of the kind of drag racing cocky kids wearing a very large cowboy hat and being quite different to the Harrison Ford that you recognize from other things. The other interesting fact about him is when he wasn't getting small roles in movies, he was a carpenter and he has something called Perfect Plane, which is a natural attribute very few of us actually have, where basically he can look at something like a door frame, for example, and know exactly what the angles are on it. He just has an eye for that detail. It's not something you can learn. So if you like, Carpentry's loss was Hollywood's gain, and Harrison Ford was on a huge hot streak. From the late 70s to the late 90s, he was basically the biggest star around. He was in the Star Wars movies. He was in the Indiana Jones movies. He was in The Fugitive sometimes. He did small niche movies like Mosquito Coast. He did Blade Runner. He did just this endless list of quality. Air Force One. You know, he's widely voted as the best fictional president of all time. The point is that Harrison Ford was just so hot for so long as well that, like anybody, they don't stay at the top forever, and he kind of faded away a little bit into the 2000s. The movies weren't making as much money, and some of them weren't as good. The thing about something like The Fugitive is, yeah, it's not one of his major brands, but it's just beautifully put together movie. It's as well-crafted as an Indiana Jones movie. And then what's interesting is, when we talk about legacy movies, where they sort of revitalize a movie from back in the day, Harrison Ford, in the last 10 years, has really gone through that renaissance. He's gone back and played a silver-haired Han Solo. He's gone back and played a silver-haired Descartes in the sequel to Blade Runner. And, of course, he's playing a silver-haired Indiana Jones in The Dial of Destiny. So this has really helped his career as... You know, more big movies which can be added to his lifetime grosses. Just amazing. You know, he's he's never really been one that's been recognised in terms of his acting. The role that he came closest to winning an Oscar for was his role of a detective in the very down-to-earth realistic movie Witness. You know, it wasn't sort of a high concept like Indiana Jones or Star Wars. But he didn't win it then. And he's just... He's just sort of ever-reliable, and I'm a huge fan of him, and somebody once described him as having the same acting style as Clint Eastwood, and the description for both of, them, both of them was dynamic lethargy, and I love that, in the sense that neither of them are known for long, loquacious speeches. Did an episode a while ago about speeches and didn't mention those two actors at all in it. And quite right too, but they're kind of men of few words, but they get on with it. They both have a reputation of kind of being grumpy as well. Harrison Ford is notoriously hard to be interviewed. He really doesn't suffer fools. And, you know, this is a man who also is a pilot as well, just like Tom Cruise. And, you know, so he makes things with his hands. He flies airplanes. Uh, he sort of 
famously ran about the time he was making the new Star Wars movies, he actually had a problem with his aircraft, single-seat propeller aircraft, and he ended up having a crash land it on a golf course, and he walked away from it. This was a man in his 70s doing that. So, you've got a lot of love for him. Now, with the Dial of Destiny, there is a problem. He has done a great job looking after himself over the years. He's a very fit 70-year-old. Well, I'm saying 70-year-old. Actually, he's in his 70s. He is now 80. And I don't care how fit you are as a 79-year-old, you're still 79. There is the famous line in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first movie with Indiana Jones in it, which he says, It's not the years, it's the mileage. And that's a great line, and it's been used lots of times before in other circumstances. But no, when you're 79, it's the age. And that's, that's the problem. When people say, oh, you know, you can't possibly recast Indiana Jones, and there's no denying that Harrison Ford brought his own charisma to the role, it is worth remembering that in the third movie, we get to see Indiana Jones as a young man being chased. And it sort of explains things like how he became good with a whip and how he got that scar on his chin. And he's played by River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix's brother, who sadly died while he was still in his 20s. But at that point, you know, River Phoenix did have a lot of charisma and he was the kind of perfect person to play young Indiana Jones. And it worked. Nobody complained about it. Then, of course, there was the young Indiana Jones TV series where, again, obviously you can't have Harrison Ford playing himself round about 20, so they got somebody else to play him. And that was an interesting TV series that really didn't get as much love as it should have done because it actually started doing things like using digital effects to not create sort of digital characters, but to split screens so suddenly when you see soldiers marching down the street, you can get double of them and it doesn't look like it's mirrored and, and things like that. I don't want to get too technical with all the all the special effects, but it was one of these shows that actually paved the way for lots of other shows, but it whereas Indiana Jones cleaned up at the box office, young Indiana Jones was not one of the greatest TV shows of all time. So yeah, he's been played by other people already, and I would say it's time for a change. And and certainly Harrison Ford has said this is the last time he's going to play him, and he sort of wanted to sort of tip the hat one more time. He was kind of already bored with the Han Solo character. I have no idea how much money he was paid to come back again, but he kind of enjoyed himself in those movies. But in this one, you can tell he's he's really pleased to be back playing that character. The other thing I'm going to say right at the you know, offset about Dial of Destiny is with each one of the Indiana Jones movies is you have this opening sequence. Spielberg has always said that he would have liked to have directed a Bond movie. And you know, outright, there have been references to Bonds in a number of his films, perhaps most overtly in Catch Me If You Can, where literally they play the Bond music. But anyway, just like in a James Bond movie, you get this opening sort of like 10 minute action sequence that then feeds into the main story. Sometimes it's related, sometimes it's not. It's the same thing with Indiana Jones. And so in the first one, it's probably the most famous opening of a movie ever. Do I really need to tell you? He's trying to break into this South American temple and there are all the traps and the rolling ball and then he gets chased by the natives and he jumps into the plane as he sort of escapes them and then he goes, 
you know, why is there a snake in the plane? I hate snakes, Jack, I hate them. So, you know, that's the first one. Second one, he's doing a deal in Shanghai and there's these Chinese gangsters and it all goes, you know, ridiculously large and, and amazing. And then in the third one, as I said, we got River Phoenix. And so in the fourth one, other people chasing stuff around. Anyway, I will spend minimal amount of time on the fourth one, except to say, bitter disappointment. Everybody was disappointed with that one. And the other thing about these legacy sequels is sometimes you see them passing on things to the next generation. In the case of Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner, I thought that worked really well, because Ryan Gosling's an amazing actor. But with Shia LaBeouf playing Mutt, who turns out to be his son, Shia LaBeouf is no Harrison Ford. Just simple as that. You know, I know Shia LaBeouf's had his issues. I know Shia LaBeouf actually overall is a pretty good actor. But he doesn't have that easy charisma of Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford in his prime, if you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, he is one of those men where uniquely, well not uniquely, but he's one of these rare men where men saw that character and wanted to be that character and women saw that character and wanted to be with that character you know quite often there are these sort of pretty boy roles and guys sort of go yeah he'd be blown away in a strong wind or something not interested whereas the girls are all swooning and you know then you get something like schwarzenegger in predator where all guys are going i'd love to have that physique and he looks amazing and women are going too sweaty and muscly no thank you so you've got this sort of venn diagram of desirability to all sexes genders etc and indiana jones is right there in the middle so there we go so my point is in the fifth film dial of destiny we do like the other ones have an opening sequence and what they've done the problem with the fourth one way too much cgi obviously there was just there was a need for practical effects in the 80s because they didn't have much in the way of cgi then but what we've got is if you like the best of both worlds with dial of destiny because we get an opening set during World War II. We get to see the war years, which we'd always hoped to see with the original trilogy, but didn't quite get there. And so we have a digitally de-aged Indiana Jones in his prime being chased by Nazis, and it's all good rollicking stuff. It reminds you of the good old days of Indiana Jones. Now, the thing about these de-aging things, deep fakes, etc., is they are still not quite perfect. With the movie Rogue One, it's definitely one of the best Star Wars movies. But the problem is Grand Moff Tarkin. Now, Peter Cushing had died many years earlier, so if they were going to bring him in, there's a bit where they introduce him, and it's a CGI head, and it's reflected in the glass, and it works. Because there's just enough that distance between you and Tarkin, your eyes will believe it. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll believe that's Tarkin, even though you know it's dead and it's clearly some kind of CGI trickery. But then you get scenes where he's literally walking along, talking to people, and there isn't some sort of, like, reflection or something like that, and it's like, okay, that's a CGI head. Now, it was amazing in the late 20-teens, but nowadays it's like, mm, yeah, you know, it's only going to age. And I am sure that... If you listen to this podcast in the year, I don't know, 2033, you'll be going, oh, there are all these mistakes with the opening of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I hear you. It's not perfect. I am probably looking at it through not so much rose-tinted glasses, but fanboy glasses going, I'm not going to look at the corners too carefully. I'm just seeing a young Indiana Jones 
shooting Nazis, and that's entertainment to this guy, okay? You've got that, and I will be coming back to Dial of Destiny and how it's a little bit different in a good way, and it solves the problem of the bad guy element in a bit, okay? But the point is, it's very, even though Spielberg's not directing, this is the problem, if you like, because you had Spielberg, Lucas, and Harrison Ford, each one of these people wanted a large pile of money before, the, and quite rightly too, before they made the next one, which makes it prohibitively expensive before you've even started, you know, actually making the movie. And so would it ever happen again? The answer is, well, let's cut out some of these people. And so I don't know, because the Indiana Jones rights were sold at the same time as Star Wars, whether George Lucas earned anything or not out of this. I'm going to guess probably not. He probably sold the IP and therefore done. You know, it was part of the deal. But if that's the case, then the only expensive thing is Harrison Ford, and Harrison Ford sort of like makes this legit. Indeed, if they'd recast Harrison Ford and also had different writers and also had a different director, you could argue, is any of this actually an Indiana Jones movie anymore? And I hear you on that. That's the setup, and it's, hey, it's only 15 minutes into the podcast. You can tell I'm fanboying here. Let's go back to Little Gem, shall we? I have made reference before that one of the best bits in, or one of the cleverest bits in the first movie is when it all gets a bit too much, when they open up the Ark of the Covenant, and then you get the power and spirits of God pouring out of it, killing Nazis, and quite right too, certainly if there's a group that the God created by the Jewish people would go for, it would be the Nazis. I have no problem with their deaths whatsoever. The thing is, though, you get Indy saying, Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion, don't look at it, no matter what happens. Which is the perfect moment for a parent to stick their hands over the eyes of a young child like Jem. Of course, we tried to squirm and sort of peek, etc. And it's the first PG-rated movie with an exploding head. Obviously, you've got the Gestapo guy's face melting as well. And actually, if you notice that these things now have flames in front of them, and I think it was a mixture of both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg going, you know, let's let's have exploding heads and things like that. It's like, oh, you know, make it messier. And then when they saw it in the actual, you know, when they actually saw the prints, it's sort of like, oh, that's a little too strong. Dial it back quick, cover it up with something else. So obviously, as you get older, you can deal with this stuff absolutely fine. But... In the case of the movie, they wanted to get a PG rating, so they had to take into account little kids watching it. Brilliant idea, brilliant idea. So I'm going to say this. Now that I've been sort of like talking all the fun about this stuff, and obviously it led to a wide variety. It was such a huge hit, it led to various knockoffs. I remember my mother saying when it came to Romancing the Stone, let's go and see this film, and I knew nothing about it. This is what happened before the internet. Kids couldn't find out about stuff necessarily that easily. It's like, oh, I don't want to go. Never heard of it. It's got the word romance in it. I'm a 10-year-old boy. Not interested. And, well, yeah, I'm a bit older, but regardless. The point is, she then sold it to me going, it's like Indiana Jones, only set in the modern day. I'm in. I'm in. Just show me. And indeed, Romancing the Stone is a great film. It's not quite as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is now known for the record to make everything... Ugh, this is the problem with franchises nowadays. There has to be a formula. And so you get... Obviously, the second one was called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny. So... The first one is now being basically renamed Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which 
is a bad name for it. Just call it Raiders or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyway, I digress. This is where I'm going to be a little bit controversial. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is a perfect film. It's just, it's just cinema perfection. That's not the controversial bit. And I think that all the other ones are a decline in standards. I'm not going to tell you where Dial of Destiny goes. I will actually say, well, almost anything's going to be better than Kingdom of Crystal Skull. So it's definitely up above that one. Nothing can get back to the Peerless Raiders. The thing about the second one, Temple of Doom, Spielberg has been on the record saying, I was trying to recreate the kind of exotic nature and sort of like shocking nature of these B-movies. The whole thing about Indiana Jones is he's based on these B-movie serial type things that you would get in the cinema, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's the sort of thing that Spielberg would have grown up with, and they kind of don't exist anymore. And it absolutely ties into that. But unfortunately, what it implies is that the Indian culture will eat lots of disgusting things, and it's sort of like grossing out. And nowadays, we would call it you know, culturally insensitive or maybe xenophobic or something like that. It, that bit hasn't aged well. Indeed, you have this stuntman who his claim to fame is in the original trilogy. Sadly, in the third film, his scene is actually edited out. It was filmed, but it didn't make it into the final cut. But there's this, we all know the scene in Raiders. You've got Indy, he's sneaking around the German base, and then he's near the big plane and he bumps into this bald guy with a huge moustache. And he's extremely intimidating, and we then get an amazing fight scene. You'd already seen that man once. He was the big Nepalese guy firing the machine gun in the barroom scene when he catches up with Marion. So, he's already been killed twice by Indiana Jones there, and the second time really disgusting with the whole propeller business in the airport, or with the, next to the airplane, I should say. Then in the second movie, Temple of Doom, the really big Sikh fighter who he has a fight in on like this conveyor belt, that's the same guy. Again, he's sort of like, it's not blackface, but yes, he's wearing various skin pigmentation to darken his skin. And that's not cool nowadays. But if you like, it was an in-joke. And it was, it's one of these examples where no offense was meant in the 1980s. It just hasn't aged very well. And then in the third one, he was actually meant to be on the Zeppelin, basically. And he's playing a German, in which case it's a white guy, so that's absolutely fine. And uh, Indy sort of, like, punches him out. The getting onto the Zeppelin bit would, took a little bit more time in the third movie. Now, the thing I'm going back to the controversial thing, I think each one, as I said, is sort of slightly in decline in, in, in ability. I like Templar Dune. If you put aside the slightly off-tone racial stuff, it's a really fun film. It was very dark. It led to criticism of it being extremely dark when it first came out. And then we got The Last Crusade. Now, first of all, you know, post 9-11, you're not going to call anything something crusade anymore. That's just, that's not cool. But that's absolutely fine, seeing it was released in 1989. It's the biggest grossing movie of 1989. And number two was the Batman film that came out that year with Michael Keaton. 
Indeed, this year, you got the same Batman being played by Michael Keaton in the Flash movie, and you still got Indiana Jones. So those two guys are still kicking ass and taking names, whatever it is. Jim's quickly good. Nearly 35 years later. Nearly. What a weird quirk that is. But a lot of people feel that the third one's their favourite movie. I remember, even in the cinema in 1989, thinking some of these special effects aren't that great. Everything to do around the Zeppelin and the plane with the, you know, getting off the plane and the Zeppelin and then sort of like crashing in. Obviously, this has to be special effects. I get that. It just wasn't particularly crisp in 89. And they haven't aged any better when you fast forward 34 years later. So, yes, I agree. The bickering, the chemistry, the on-screen charisma of Sean Connery and Harrison Ford is magnificent. Those bits on their own could be the best bits of Indiana Jones ever, but it's wrapped round other stuff that isn't that great. Sorry about that. And then you've got the fourth film. As I said, the basic problem there is they're trying to put too much emphasis on the wrong character, and also they're depending too much on CGI, and it just doesn't work. But if you like numbers one and three, Nazis, they're the bad guys. Yeah, fair enough. Number two, weird cult to do with Carly. Perfectly serviceable, but not the best kind of enemies. Nazis are the best kind of enemies, aren't they? Although Spielberg has said subsequently that as he's matured, he probably wouldn't pick Nazis to be the bad guys, cartooning bad guys, because of who they actually were in the war and the world history. After things like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, you couldn't really go back to almost a lower low levels of comedy Nazi, usually played by some British character actor. But hey, he's not directing the fifth one, and we're back to Nazis again. And Mads Mikkelsen, of course, he's always reliable as a boo-hiss baddie. And so, yeah, he fits in to the genre of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones extremely well. We've got each one about a MacGuffin. I believe it was Alfred Hitchcock who created the term MacGuffin, meaning the thing that everybody's searching for, the thing that either fixes the problem or everybody's trying to get or whatever. It's the plot device, really. And so you don't get a better MacGuffin than the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they even spend some time. If you, if you didn't go to Sunday school, here's a brief little summary of, like, what the Ark of the Covenant is. And so literally you get some characters sort of say, you know, good God, it's like, yeah, that's what the Hebrews thought. In other words, we now know that obviously Nazis are bad. If this genuinely is a thing from God itself, you don't want a godlike powerful weapon in the hands of the Nazis. I'm with you, Indiana, go get it. The Sankara stones of the second one, you know, not particularly cool. But then we're sort of like back to Judeo-Christian ideas there with the cup of Christ, etc. And the whole meme about he chose poorly, why not? And again, the problem with MacGuffin in the fourth one is a crystal skull, and you know, is it aliens, or is it beings from another dimension? It's like, but when people turn around and say, it's so unbelievable when an alien spaceship turns up at the end of the fourth film, uh, um, excuse me, this is the one where in the first movie, God, Yahweh himself, sends his avenging angels to go down and kill Nazis using what can only be described as supernatural powers. The first movie sets the rules, okay? So, yeah, you deal with it. But back to Little Gem, I thoroughly enjoyed those three movies. I hoped to see more. Turned out I was going to have to wait a very long time. But I've always loved history. 
And this made me realize that archaeology was also an option. And actually, the two of them can be combined to create a very powerful resource tool to understand certain sites or maybe certain events that were chronicled that we might be able to now get physical evidence from. And so I ended up doing a degree in precisely archaeology and medieval history. It was a really fun three years that set me up in no way for the modern world. <laughs> I could dig a really nice meter-by-meter meter pit, okay? Oh, those right angles on the corners. That doesn't help you in anything in life. But I really enjoyed it. I found it really interesting. I learned a lot of irrelevant but fascinating information. Sadly, I didn't go to dig in the sands of the Sahara Desert or in the deep jungles of India. No, I got to dig in Wiltshire in a field full of cows. And also, at no point did I get to shoot any Nazis or indeed sleep with some smoking hot blonde Nazi agents. I guess I would have taken one for the team on that one. I mean, try and find an archaeologist aged, I'm going to say, 55 or younger that doesn't have a soft spot for Indiana Jones. But here's the thing. Here's the bit, unfortunately, where I'm going to reveal more information. Now, the other thing I have a problem with the third movie is, and, and this is why I'm coming into it, the history's all over the place. The history is largely garbage at all times. The implication in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is that the whole point of the Crusades was to try and retrieve the Holy Grail. No, it was to try and recapture Jerusalem. At no point did anybody capture the Holy Grail. There is the whole completely made-up conspiracy theory around the Templars and the Holy Grail, and the Holy Grail is actually turns out to be the bloodline of Jesus Christ. All of that is garbage, I feel obliged to say. So that's rubbish, and that sort of slightly frustrated me as in, by 1989, I'm one of the few people you're ever going to talk to who has a GCSE, not just in history, but in medieval history. I don't think that's even a course you can take anymore. So I'd already learnt about the Crusades and was sitting there going, Indiana Jones is terrible if he thinks that this is what actually happened because the documentary evidence points to something completely different. I digress. So look, this is a classic example of if you want to put your history hat on, you will tear it to pieces. That's not the point of the movie. And this is where I was like, this is why I have a problem with something like Braveheart, because they're sort of talking in cod Shakespearean accents and they keep throwing up dates and locations and things like that on the screen. It looks like they've done their homework, but actually they're just trying to entertain you. Whereas, apart from the fact that you get a date right at the beginning, just to give you an idea which year we're in, after that, you get the classic thing of how did Indy get across the, the globe? Oh, you see a picture of the globe with these red dots that go across it, which was a very 1930 way and very cheap way to show this is how he travelled by plane, with perhaps some stock footage of an airplane flying in the sky. It's like, I get it. He's taking various different planes, and it shows you where he makes the connections. Like, you know, oh, how exotic he's going from New York to Liverpool, to then Budapest, to then Cairo. Oh, you know, ooh, the good old days of propeller aircraft travel and all that kind of stuff. So that's a problem. I'm also going to give you another problem with Indiana Jones, which is, I've told you he's bad as a historian, but here's the real shocker. He's a terrible archaeologist as well. There is the famous shout of him saying, that belongs in a museum. Well, yes and no. Obviously, nowadays, we talk about cultural sensitivities and things like that, and absolutely, we need to be paying attention to those. But, at the same time, 
That's A, not how a 1930s archaeologist would work, but even then, in the 1930s, and what I learned at university, context is everything. If somebody just hands you out of the blue a dagger and says, this was used by... I'm going to sort of make stuff up. This was used by Julius Caesar during the Gallic Wars. It's like, okay, well, I can do various metallurgical tests to see how old it is. So, oh, yeah, great. Okay, fine. First century BC. It's the right age. And it looks pretty Roman to me. But was it Julius Caesar's? You know, was it found in Gaul? This is the important thing. If I were to, this is a terrible example because this is how Indiana Jones would kind of do it. If I literally opened up Julius Caesar's coffin which for the record okay that's not actually a thing but if we did have julius caesar's coffin and we opened it up and there's that dagger it's safe to say all these things together adds up to that's julius caesar's dagger but just sort of saying something's from the first bc and you know it's of that civilization well you know it's like you know is this brad pitt's phone i don't know you know brad pitt saying where's my phone and if I sort of like tap the screen, I can see his face shine up on it. It's like, it's probably Brad Pitt's home then. So the critical thing with archaeology is it's not just what do you find, but where do you find it? What's it telling you about the context of the site that you're on? And what's Indiana Jones forever doing? He's grabbing stuff and running the hell out of there. Indeed, in the amazing and again, absolutely classic cinema history making opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, a film I have described already on this podcast as a perfect movie. Okay, all right, you know, I'm on your side on this one. By him grabbing that golden idol, a priceless thousand-year-old, presumably some kind of like Mayan temple, is destroyed. That is absolutely unacceptable collateral damage done by an archaeologist, okay? The golden idol in its place and you check everything else, you get, you know, unfortunately, this is where you get the theodolites out and the ranging rods. You know, you start scraping off the layers carefully with your trowel. I have done all of these things in a field in Wiltshire, occasionally being not exactly attacked by cows, but we used to put up a very mild electric fence around the area that we were digging. And those cows, I'm, I'm sorry, for, for those people who say, you know, vegetarians go, oh, you know, Cows, they got the same feelings as human beings. No, they don't. I have spent more time with cows than probably your average person who isn't a dairy farmer, okay? I have literally spent two entire summers sitting in fields in Wiltshire dealing with bloody cows, okay? And they're dumb. You know, first of all, out of all of the area, why are you trying to get into the area that has no grass on it? That makes no sense. Also, I watched one of them. You know, these are very mild electric shot fences. This is our sort of security sort of electricity that goes around a military base, 10,000 volts. These are like three volts and it just sort of slightly spasms you. It basically says, go away. I literally watched a cow walk up to it, put its two legs over, then shuffle up its rear legs and then put those two legs over as well. Now, you might say that's really clever, but it's like, great, you're now standing in a place that has no purpose for you whatsoever. On more than one occasion, I came back in the morning and in my particular trench, a cow had managed to do a massive cow pat in it. Nice, fresh cow pat. Thanks, guys. And if you're saying, well, this sounds like revenge or, or whatever, you sort of sour grapes. No. While I was sitting there on one occasion digging away, I watched a cow in a field full of leaves and grass and all this green stuff walk up to the Ford Transit van and proceed to eat the rubber sealant round the main windscreen. What part of that looks like it's edible or more delicious than the stuff you're meant to eat, you complete idiot. 
And so, yeah, I went off on a bit of a rant there, but the point is context is so important. Indiana Jones never cares about it. And if you like each stage, you've got these different bits of, of vague history going on. And I'll, so I'll finish off with a bit of Dial of Destiny, okay? So unlike something like the Ark of the Covenant in the first one, or the Cup of Christ in the third one, etc., Dial of Destiny isn't an old thing. It's actually to do with, and this is actually true, that after World War II, you know, what do you get when you win a war? Up until World War II, basically the winner always got something. It might be money, it might be land. And in the case of America, they didn't get any of those things, but they did get something that was valuable. It was called Operation Paperclip. And basically the idea was to try and grab as many German scientists as they could, because German tech was very good in World War II. Now, from the perspective of a German scientist, you would much rather get picked up by America or Britain than Russia, or Soviet Union, I should say, where you're probably going to be in a gulag. So, basically, by the end of the war, the Russian 45 and 46 was for the... Basically, the Americans got more of the scientists, and particularly rocket scientists, than the Soviets did. And so, you get Werner von Braun, the most famous one of the lot. He worked on the V1 and V2. Technically, there was a V3 as well, weapon V for vengeance. And they were working out of Penamunda, which was this sort of like, for the time, incredibly complex rocketry facility, which was built by slave labor and was basically manned and maintained by people who were basically taken out of concentration camps and dealt with in incredibly inhuman positions, okay? And this is the thing, Werner von Braun, to have this sort of secret level clearance, he had to be a member of the SS. And he never spent any time in prison. He was never taken to court and tried or anything like that. And he was just one of many German scientists that were moved quietly to America. And Werner von Braun became the face of the rocketry that eventually led man to the moon. And this is the sheer irony. Without these German Nazi scientists, man would not have been able to land on the moon by 1969. Maybe humanity would have got there by, let's say, 1980, but they had a step up by all these missile weapons that were being used in World War II. So that connection to the Nazis, even though we're in the 1960s in Dial of Destiny, absolutely was a thing. All the shenanigans around it absolutely weren't a thing, but it does make it for an entertaining movie. And so I'm going to just turn around and say, yes, go and see it. You know, this is at least telling people that there's still juice out there. I'm going to say Harrison's definitely deserved to hang up the hat and whip. We can give it to somebody else, Chris Pratt, maybe. You know, he's kind of got a bit of sort of swaggery charm about him. Or maybe you get a, some complete total unknown, but absolutely has that acting ability to him. Because Indiana Jones is a brand, and as I've already said, he's been played by other people before. That's my thoughts on that one. Love to get your thoughts on this, and indeed the movie as a whole. Uh, I'm at Gem Deducho on Twitter. Say hi. Please click subscribe and do all this good stuff. And as always, another episode coming soon. <laughs>